one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is a special episode, but this is episode number 417 for the week of Monday, May 21st, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. I'm just going to sit back and let uh, you and Mark uh, regale us with some Traveler's Tales. Yeah, it's a very interesting weekend over at the Kennedy Space Center, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about it. Which also allows me to introduce with us as well, Mark Ratterman. This is going to be different. Not that we're going to be doing something other than talking, but uh, our subject for tonight. Indeed, our subject for tonight is SpaceX, who has scheduled their launch of the Falcon 9 rocket, carrying their Dragon capsule on the COTS-2 Plus flight, which is their demonstration flight which is scheduled to rendezvous and berth with the International Space Station. Now, before we get to what actually happened with launch and everything, Mark and I were at the Kennedy Space Center to cover the event, and we're going to briefly go over with you what went on and share with you a couple of our favorite clips from the days leading up to launch. Right, Mark? Absolutely. You know, it's uh, the only better thing than being there is to get to talk about it and hopefully for our listeners to enjoy some of the extras that we got indeed we hope you have as much fun listening to it as we did getting this information for you so let's begin things off here with our first clip that we're going to play for you because this is a very unique idea for nasa because nasa is funding this cots program which is currently between orbital which is a space company as well as spacex and they are actually funding them as they reach certain milestones. Now, NASA is basically donating money as they reach certain increments and certain milestones. But NASA is not necessarily running the entire show, which is a very unique transition, which we have a clip for you here about the transition to commercial. And we're going to hear that from... Phil McAllister, the director for commercial spaceflight development. We've seen the government sort of push the state of the art and then the private sector come back in. And my personal feeling is, uh, and it goes back to one of the earlier questions about what this mission means, uh, I kind of see that transition as being inevitable. I believe it is going to happen at some point. If it's not today and this mission uh, falls short of expectations, it'll happen in the future because it is inevitable. Low Earth orbit is going to be a place, uh, I believe, where we're going to see a lot of activity, um, economic activity, scientific activity. Um, 
across the board. So I believe uh, there's a role, this, there's certainly a place for everybody, and the universe is a very big place, and the solar system is a very big place. So NASA's still got a lot of work to do. Uh, but for this more routine operation of going up and down to low Earth orbit, it's difficult, it's hard. Uh, Alan gave you a little glimpse of that. But it is something that we've been doing for decades now, and it's, been, it's something that we've done uh, over 100 times. Uh, by NASA, and so we think now the time is right for all those conditions. The, we're not pushing the state of the art. Um, it's a well-defined mission that has potential for other customers in addition to NASA. When you put that all together, it's, in my opinion, an inevitable uh, outcome that this will eventually be low Earth orbit, and I think that's a good thing for everybody, right? It frees NASA up to continue to do uh, the things that have we've been uh, made us proud as a nation over those years. And the other important thing is we've had some um, we've had some setbacks setbacks in human spaceflight, and that's required us to sort of have a discussion within the nation about whether this is something we still want to do. And there's been some people after each one of those setbacks have argued for us to get out of uh, space or low Earth orbit or human spaceflight. I believe that this transition is, is very important for continuing that push outward into the solar system. Once we get uh, private enterprise and economic interests out to low Earth orbit, there will be no turning back. Uh, it will no longer be subject to the prevailing political winds, and that's why I think this transition is so important. We just, uh, it'll just keep pushing us further and further out, no more looking backwards, only looking forwards. So I, I thought that was really interesting, them taking a look, you know, because when I originally asked the question, I compared it to the airline industry, which originally right. began as uh, government-run and then just became government-regulated. And they said that was a pretty good comparison to it and then gave that answer, but... I also found it interesting how they mentioned towards the end that, you know, it eliminates the political side of it that goes along with it. To some degree. Uh, but again, as also I think was said in the press conference at some point, that NASA's role is not regulatory. Mark, I think the FAA is really at on point on this one as far as any type of regulations. Um, NASA's role is sort of an, an interested investor in this whole thing, but they are not call you know they, they they're not even involved in in the regulation of this whole thing that's that's off that's off with the FAA if i'm not mistaken and the FAA's primary interest from what i recall uh in one specific instance that i looked into is safety of the public on the ground really i i, I thought they might also have something to do with with you know this, the air rights and things like that but wow okay well, yeah yeah they would with uh with particularly things that are going to be coming along in the, in future years, but the FAA is is uh, concerned with the safety of people and infrastructure on the ground, and probably to some extent with crew. But uh, that's more the the bailwick of the actual company that is going to go into the crew business. Right, I mean, uh, it's the actual. Now, now, the actual control of the vehicle, that is solely up to space exploration technologies. Again, NASA is just uh, – I understand that there are certain little go-no-go points where NASA could override or somebody in the, in, in the, in the uh, ISS uh, Mission Control Center could override and call an abort. But uh, essentially, um, control of the vehicle, of, of the unmanned vehicle, the Dragon, is – totally up to uh, space exploration technologies or SpaceX, no? 
That's 100% correct. Okay, I wanted to make sure. Yeah, was that, there was somebody that asked about that, and that was the exact response. You know, if needed, they could take over, but it's basically SpaceX's mission. Did they mention it? I know there there's some changes to the to the dra- to this particular dragon as opposed to the first test flight. I know it's it's got the common the, the common berthing mechanism on there. The solar panels are there. Uh, there is also some significant changes to the software. Yeah, I guess I'll I'll let you guys go ahead and talk to that. Yeah, we'll we'll get to some of those first in a little bit later, but uh, the main thing is that somebody did ask about in regards to how is this vehicle different from the one that launched uh back in December of 2010. Basically what they said was that they have some made some major improvements to it. No major change was made to the actual spacecraft itself or to the design of it in general. It still looks pretty much the same. But basically they made some major improvements and they essentially are calling it a new craft from what it was back in December of 2010. So it's totally revamped with the software and now it has the solar panels on it and We'll get into some more of that a little bit later on. In the meantime, though, as we were saying that NASA can take over this at certain points and that, you know, NASA is transitioning, this is still a partnership between NASA and SpaceX with this COTS program that we were talking about. Most partnerships, as you'll hear, turn out to fail. This one was actually a success. And we'll hear a little bit about the partnership that was with NASA and SpaceX. Uh, it really is a significant achievement. We're on the eve of a very big mission, and it's been uh, it's been it's had its challenges along the way. But not only getting us this far, but also for the partnership that we have been able to forge between NASA and SpaceX has been uh, a huge success story. You know, it's estimated that well over half of strategic partnerships fail. Uh, some put that number as close to closer to 80 percent. And yet, uh, this partnership with two very different organizations, two very different cultures, expectations, histories have come together and uh, stood the test of time. And we have really forged a successful relationship that's been a very, very difficult thing, many challenges along the way. And yet, here we are uh, on this eve of, uh, of this test flight. So regardless of what happens tomorrow, I do want to congratulate both Alan and Gwen and the organizations they represent for getting us this far. And that was, once again, Phil McAllister speaking. And I thought it was interesting, back on April 16th, they had a, I guess, sort of a flight readiness review briefing where I was at KSC, and the actual briefing was at Johnson Space Center, and Elon Musk was there, and he made some statements about the partnership and how essential NASA was, and here we go with his statement then. And also a little surprise for you about what I was amazed with during that press conference is the number of times that they kind of hedged their bets as to how successful this would be. Uh, I'd just like to start off by um, saying thank you to, to NASA for giving us this opportunity. Um, as you may have heard me say before, SpaceX wouldn't have been able to get started without the amazing uh, work that NASA had done in the past, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the help of NASA. So I'd like to be real clear in uh, expressing my appreciation for that. Um, I'd also like to express a note of appreciation to, to the American public who are ultimately funding funding this and, and just want people to know that uh, we've really done everything we can to, to make sure that this mission is going to go well. Um, it's been a huge amount of hard work by the SpaceX team um, in partnership with NASA. And um, I think we've got a pretty good shot, but uh, it, it is worth emphasizing that there's, that is, there's a lot that can go 
well, a lot that can go wrong in a mission like this because you've got to have the success of the rocket and then you've got to have success of the, the spacecraft. Now, we have, we've launched the rocket twice before and we've launched the spacecraft once, um, but they're still, they're still relatively new. Um, and then uh, there's the, the whole proximity operations uh, and berthing system, uh, which is going to be tested for the first time in space. And, um, and so there's, there's, um, there's, and there's, no, there's no space station on the ground. So our work to date has been done with, done by a simulation and by approximating uh, the circumstances that it would find in, in orbit and, and approaching the space station. So um, I, I think that's, that's just important to appreciate that there's, this is, this is pretty tricky. Um, and I think also for, 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 for the public out there, they, they may not realize that the you know, space, space station is zooming around the Earth uh, every 90 minutes, um, and it's, it's going at sort of 17,000 miles an hour. And so you've got to launch up there, you've got to rendezvous and be tracking the space station to within inches, really. Um, and this is a, you know, something that's going 12 times faster than a bullet from an assault rifle. So it's, it's, it's hard. Um, and uh, but but I, I think I think we've got a pretty good chance. But but there's like I said, I want, I want to emphasize this. Um, that this is as as has been said um, by um, other people in the panel that this is a, that this is a test flight. So um, uh, if, if 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 we don't succeed in berthing on this mission, um, then we've got a couple of more missions later this year that, uh, and I think we'll succeed on on one of those. So again, like he said, uh, this could be. Uh... You know, there's a lot of challenges that go along with this. And one thing that every single person in SpaceX that we've spoken to, uh, be it Elon Musk or who you're about to hear from, uh, Gwen Shotwell, who's the president of SpaceX, this is a test flight, and they continually emphasize that. So let's go ahead and hear her comments regarding that. This is a test flight. Uh, what's important from a SpaceX perspective on a test flight is to make sure we learn something. Um, hopefully we learn a lot. Uh, and hopefully we make a lot of progress, but uh, but really what we're here to do is to demonstrate this spacecraft, uh, ring it out to the maximum extent possible, and then obviously the ultimate goal is to berth. So that's just one short instance of it, but they continually were saying that every representative and her as well continually mentioned that this is a test flight and they are expecting some failures. The reason that there is a possibility for so many failures here is that there are also so many firsts that they are attempting. And uh, the list is a pretty long one, so I'm not going to go through it. Instead, I'm going to let Alan Lindenmoyer, who is the manager for Commercial Crew and Cargo Program with NASA, talk a little bit about the firsts that are involved on this COTS 2-plus mission. Let me talk about some of the firsts of this mission. This Dragon is going to be the first vehicle spacecraft uh, that SpaceX has developed with a heat rejection and a power generation system. That means it's the first time you will see the spacecraft deploy its solar arrays in order to generate power during the mission. It'll have a jet jettisonable solar array covers that must come off. It has a charging system, cooling pumps, a thermal radiator, cabin circulation fans, and all this equipment that's necessary in order to meet the requirements for uh, mating with the International Space Station. Uh, this Dragon will be the first time we'll see uh, the flight of the rendezvous and proximity sensors, the LIDARs, and the imagers that are required to give the proper range and range rate information as the vehicle gets closer and closer to the station. Uh, this is the first time that SpaceX is flying uh, 
a common berthing mechanism. This is the mechanism that's used on all the vehicles that attach, uh, that are berthed to the space station. Uh, that is uh, assembled onto this dragon, as well as a hatch. This is the first time we'll see the operation of a hatch that SpaceX developed uh, so we can enter the vehicle. It's also the first time we'll see the operation of the new flight computers on the vehicle. These are specially redundant computers in order to meet the requirements necessary for uh, uh, the safety requirements of the space station, so uh, those will be demonstrated on this mission. And this is also the first time we'll see the trunk separated from the Dragon spacecraft. On the previous mission, the uh, Dragon was separated right at the trunk plane. This time, the trunk and the Dragon will be separated from the second stage, fly out of the wish station, and then it will be separated before the reentry. We'll also see the first-time operation of the SpaceX-developed COTS UHF communications unit, which is a, a radio that SpaceX built that has already been flown and pre-positioned on the space station. And this is going to allow communications between the station and the Dragon during the mission, as well as a crew command panel that uh, can give uh, specific commands to the vehicle. So there's a lot of firsts. Uh, First flight was tough. This is uh, even even more uh, complex. Just so you know, the crew command panel and some of the other materials that are already on board the station were actually brought up on the space shuttle mission STS-129 to give you an idea of how long they've already been planning this. So there's a lot of firsts that are going on. Now you can see the possibilities of everything going wrong, right? Well, yeah, I mean, even Gwen Shotwell said herself that she said that she gave her, her you know, the whole effort uh, this time around a, a little more than 50-50 chance of, uh, of succeeding. Uh, so if, if, if you take a look at, at everything, you know, if you really, really listen to what uh, Alan Lindemore was saying, indeed, it's it's an impressive laundry list that SpaceX has to accomplish. But they've got to do it, and they've got to do it well and demonstrate that they can do it in order to, to continue moving uh, and getting cargo up to the ISS, because this is critical. I mean, we're, 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 we're talking about the future of the ISS here, and they're not the only ones involved, too. Sawyer, as you said earlier, um, uh, another company, Orbital Sciences, has got their uh, vehicle, the Cygnus, which will be launched from Wallops Island later this year. So uh, there are two horses in this race, and we'll just see who the winner is. Exactly. The people at SpaceX are very enthusiastic that they will get the, that they'll get the contract and they will be the ones doing the constant uh, back and forth to the ISS. That's what they're hoping. I, I mean, there are other people that are very skeptical of it, and that have been, right? Well, yeah, I mean, even um, former NASA Administrator Michael Griffin had uh, had said something earlier, uh, uh, or much earlier in this whole process, basically said that, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but he said something to the effect that SpaceX couldn't carry his laundry up to the ISS, let alone you know uh, car cargo on a regular basis. And I believe one of the reporters at the uh, at the pre-launch press conference uh, had pointed that out. And I have to give a a gold star to uh, SpaceX President uh, Gwen Shotwell for her reply on this because I thought she handled it exceptionally well and with a lot of a lot of. Uh, professionalism. She could have gone the low road, but instead she took the high road, and I was really, really impressed with uh, with the way she handled it. So sorry if you're going to run that clip for me, please. I'd appreciate it. You know, it's really easy to criticize 
uh, and it's very difficult to solve a problem and actually do something. So I tend to focus uh, on the business and getting our jobs done and not focus on those that want to criticize me or my company. I thought that was a very classy answer. I mean, she she just basically said that, hey, you know, let them say what they want. We're gonna we're gonna go ahead. We're gonna let our work speak for ourselves. So you know, she really took the high road on on that. So she gets a you know a huge, huge pat on the back for me. I have a renewed respect for her. Yeah, definitely. Especially considering you know the the actual probability of success that they're dealing with here, right, Mark? Yeah, it's not uh, it's not all simple as we've seen. With what was the uh, we had some discussion Sawyer somewhere there during the uh, last few days, where I think the record of first launch attempts versus second launch attempts. Yeah, basically, exactly. uh, SpaceX has uh, has yet to launch on their originally scheduled T minus zero mark. That even happened with a couple of engine tests where they didn't launch, you know, where they didn't go off as planned, but. In terms of actual launches of theirs, they have yet to ever launch exactly at their first plant, T minus zero. And if I believe Sawyer, it was actually Ms. Shotwell that actually pointed that out during the uh, the pre-launch press conference. So, Unfortunately, yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, you know, that, that got me a little nervous. I have to say. Well, again, you know, it's it's all part of the learning curve, as this has been stressed, and Mark, you 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 you've stressed this story. You've said this too. This whole thing is a is a test to make sure that that these these systems operate and operate well, and I believe even Alan Lindemore said that uh, you know what happens if they don't hit the mark or something like that. He said, well, that's the beauty of this particular setup or this particular test flight. If they don't hit all the marks on this particular test flight, there's the next one that will 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 just move those those objectives over to the next test flight. So, you know, they, they seem to be you know, taking it one step at a time, which is good and and smart. Oh, oh yeah, definitely indeed. That uh, you know, because this is only their third Falcon 9 launch. They had a couple launches with the Falcon 1, and a couple of failures with the Falcon 1, but they got that working, and then Falcon 9. They're two for two on at this point, and that's because you know they've watched their safety. Right, exactly, and I believe it was also uh, Ms. Shotwell that uh, said that uh, uh, the company is still been profitable for the past five years. They've got a few new contracts coming up. Uh, the next couple of years for them is going to be awfully busy, not just with NASA work, but with uh, uh, some other contracts that they have from other satellite providers that they are going to be launching for. Uh, so they've got uh, they've got uh, a busy 2012 2013 ahead of them. Indeed, and just with the number of launches and everything, and we talked about you know that so far they're two for two on the Falcon 9s. Didn't Elon Musk talk about this at the uh, flight readiness review, Mark, about their success probability? Yeah, he sure did. Uh, I'll go ahead and run his comments on that. And in terms of the probability of success. Uh, I have some hesitation about giving giving an exact number since there's they're, they're pretty big um, there's a pretty big range I think but um, yeah I, 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 I personally hesitate to give an, to, to give an exact number but I, I mean I think that the likelihood that the rocket works is is pretty good since it's worked twice before likelihood of the spacecraft the, the non-birthing or portions of the spacecraft that have been flown before working is also quite good um, but then there's there's much more of a question mark around the proximity operations and, and both things system and the solar arrays. 
uh, which are being tested for the first time. Again, the number of times that I've heard the SpaceX folks talk about, well, if it doesn't work or if we have trouble, because we've gotten kind of used to uh, with the shuttle program, you know, once the shuttle is off the pad, you know, it's a golden mission at that point and, and pretty much has been for recent years. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's been a long time since, you know, we've had those close calls with the shuttle in terms of actually getting off of the pad. I mean, obviously, we've had the uh, the delays. Just, I mean, if you take a look at STS-133, you, you, you'll see that there were tons of delays. But, you know, none, not as many of the where it gets down to blow T-10 and then, you know, you have those kind of problems. Exactly. You know, once you know you got to that point, basically, it was a golden mission right there. You know it was taken off and you knew it was on its way to the station. And, you know, once they do the... Uh in the countdown, they get down to that 10-second mark, and it's 10, 9, 8. You don't expect it to stop. And not many people do, which brings us to launch day. And uh, one person that definitely didn't expect it to stop was the NASA Public Affairs Officer George Diller, who was commentating the launch. And everything was given the go. The range was go. All systems were go. They did those checks at T-minus 2 minutes and 30 seconds and T-minus 2 minutes. And, of course, as they got down, the vehicle was already on internal power, the fueling was completely done, and all that needed to be done was the engines were to fire at T-minus three seconds, and at T-minus zero was supposed to be liftoff. So, here was George Diller's commentary of T-minus ten onward. We're at T-minus ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero, and... Lift off. We've had a cutoff. Liftoff did not occur. Yep, liftoff did not occur. I was talking with George Diller a short while afterwards about that and basically asked him, you know, we were asking him, what ended up happening? How'd you drag it out? So basically he just said, when I, you know, I said liftoff and it wasn't going, so I kept dragging it out until I had an idea what was going on. Which you could hear as he drags out liftoff, and then he shuffles his papers, and then he hears what's going on, and turns out they had a cutoff. At T-minus 0.5 seconds, the command was given for the engines to shut down due to a high-pressure reading in engine number 5, which is the middle engine on board the Falcon 9 spacecraft. Yeah, sir, and I think they've gone ahead and they've, you know, found out that it was a, a faulty valve on that engine. They've gone ahead and replaced that valve, and it looks like we are going to be shooting for a new T0 of uh, tomorrow morning as we record this. Uh, just to let folks know, as we record this, it is Monday, May 21st. Uh, we are going to be shooting for a new T0 of uh, 3.44 Eastern Daylight Time uh, in the morning uh, for the second uh, attempt on this. Right. The original T minus zero was May nineteenth at four fifty five a.m. Just to give an update on that. Right, and and I believe if we don't make tonight, that uh, uh, we kind of sort of recycle again, and and the uh, the launch time pushes back uh, twenty minutes for each for each day that uh, uh, we we're on the ground. But uh, right, the next not- launch attempt would be May twenty third at three twenty two a.m. Right, so. Um, I, I don't know. I've got some pretty good vibes about tonight, but we'll we'll see. Um, again, this is a test. We're learning a lot more about this vehicle than 
you learn by doing, and I think they're, the SpaceX again is going through that learning curve. The interesting thing, though, I found out, you know, during the the post during the scrub uh, press conference, was that theoretically, now keep in mind this was Saturday, they could go ahead, bring this thing, bring the booster down from the vertical to the horizontal, bring it back into the hangar do whatever they needed to do with it, and still get it out there for Tuesday. And I thought that was really impressive. And as well, if this were not an International Space Station launch and they didn't have a launch window of about eight seconds, then they could have recycled and tried again, which they had done previously. There was a previous one where they got a bad reading in one of the engines, and within a couple of hours, they launched However, because they only had that narrow window for the space station, they had to scrub and recycle, which was uh, a bit of a disappointment to those of us who were out on the causeway watching it, which I had my recorder rolling for that, which we're going to play a clip where you can hear our reactions. It's myself and the person who's next to me, who I'll tell you a little bit about him after the clip. And if you listen closely afterwards, you can actually hear the engine noise the raw engine sound of the three seconds it was lit as it hits us at the press site. So you'll hear our initial disappointment and then listen closely for that engine noise. Six, five, four, three, two, one. We got ignition. Come on, come on. Main engine cut off. Those engines had a pretty good roar to them. Notice it didn't disturb the crickets, though. (laughs) Not at all. The wildlife was still out and about. You know, it wasn't enough to make any fish jump or anything at that point. I'm curious if this went through anyone else's mind, but I was watching it, and you dummy, I've got some phenomenal binoculars that I forgot to pull out of my pack. And uh, But I could see the ignition, I could see the, the flame at the base of the rocket, and I what I couldn't tell is, was I seeing movement or not? And at one point, my 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 mind kind of flashed back to some of the images of the early days of, of rocketry where the rocket would rise off the pad and then explode into a fireball or disintegrate. And, and you know, I, so momentarily I feared for something like that because I couldn't tell if I saw a movement or not, but I was seeing the flame. And, and fortunately, it was the on-pad shutdown, so all was well. I should add, the, the, person, the other person who you hear in the clip, his name was um, Brian Suddeth. Uh, I was speaking with him for a little bit, and his story was one that absolutely amazed me, and that made the fact that it didn't go off all the more heartbreaking for him and even for me as well. His father was one of the main people who, in the early days of rocketry when he was working at what's now the Goddard Space Flight Center, who basically pushed for a brand new type of maneuvering fuel for them to use. That liquid was known as hydrazine and is used on every single rocket that actually ends up going out and maneuvering into space, including SpaceX's Falcon 9 and the Dragon uses hydrazine. Now, where we actually saw the launch from, the last time that he saw a launch from there was with his father, and that was Apollo 11 from that exact site. Now, his father, who ended up becoming the one who 
basically pioneered hydrazine and pushed for that, passed away. But his final wish was to have his ashes actually flown into space. And his, along with 299 other people, have their ashes actually on board the Falcon 9 rocket in the second stage. And if I recall exactly, Sawyer, I saw something on Twitter this afternoon um, that uh, Jimmy Dewan's ashes are also on board that uh, that second stage vehicle. He's one of the, those individuals. For those who, who don't know who I'm talking about, James Dewan uh, was the actor who played Montgomery Scott in the original Star Trek. So he's, he's among that, uh, those folks. It was just his story was so amazing that his father had done so much for that and that the spacecraft carrying his ashes is also carrying the fuel that he helps, you know, basically get into every single spacecraft. Talk about something coming full circle. That's quite a, you know, it's it's quite a heartwarming but also, you know, kind of a sad story. I just hope that uh, somewhere his dad is, is looking down and smiling and going, yep, that's the way I want to want, want that. You know, so you you, you kind of hope that that's that's the deal. Exactly, and of course, the big thing is that it gets off and it delivers them and the dragon capsule safely, and that's it does that successfully. However, I say successfully, many people have been calling this a failure, but uh, SpaceX President Gwen Shotwell in the post scrub conference had the entire contrary belief to that. Yeah, this is not a failure. Uh, we aborted with purpose. Uh, it would be a failure if we were to have lifted off with an engine trending in this direction. Yeah, that, that's the way I looked at it, too. I mean, you know, a failure would have been loss of vehicle, you know, loss of cargo. That We didn't have that that day. Um, that was not a failure. We learned something new about the vehicle. We learned something new about the engine. And I'm sure SpaceX is taking that into account. And, uh, again, this is entirely a learning curve. And, Mark, as you pointed out, you know, from the days of the vanguards going like, you know, boom, uh, we've, it, it took us a long time to go ahead and get it right as well. So, uh, you know, again, it, it, this is all an experiment right now. So we'll just have to go ahead, take what we can learn from this, and move forward. And, and hopefully t- uh, tomorrow morning we'll have something to celebrate. Indeed, hopefully by the time this episode gets out, we will indeed be celebrating a successful launch and hopefully the dragon will be in orbit now one thing that i was questioning about when it actually came to this and i asked this in the uh post-scrub conference as well was about how many engines did they actually need to take off and how many could they continue to work with uh otherwise and of course i did a follow-up question which got a little laugh to it so we'll go ahead and play that clip it depends on the phase of flight. Uh, we need to lift off with all nine, which is why we aborted. Uh, you can lose, uh, I believe, up to two flights, or excuse me, two engines, and still make your mission, just not at liftoff. And the software all worked according to plan for the cutoff? We cannot blame the software guys for this one. <laughs> <laughs> so no blame on the software guys. All the software worked well, and uh, they knew they didn't have nine engines trending in the right direction to launch, so they didn't. But th- that's still impressive, that with... <laughs> That they need all nine. Nine engines we're talking about here. They can't have one fail prior to liftoff. And then after liftoff, they can only have a max of two fail. Yeah, that's also good to know. So, again, you know, the, the right thing happened. We learned some, Again, we learned something on, on Saturday. We learned that the Falcon 9 booster can protect itself. And that, that's, that's what you walk away with. And this is also a great sign for the future when it comes to actual manned flights that they're planning. 
if these are the precautions that they're taking for a test flight, not having any major cargo on it, just their first ever test flight to the station, if this is the precautions that they're taking for it, imagine how safe they'll actually be as they continue on in the future. Yeah, again, um, I believe SpaceX's president, Gwen Shotwell, said that uh, uh, you've, they're aiming for, what, twenty the end of 2015, early 2016 for a possible piloted launch. And uh, we'll just have to see where the budget goes and where the money goes and so on. That's predicated on the fact that, you know, the, 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 the seed money happens and 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 all of that so uh hold on to your hold on to your seat belts here folks we may have a we may have a somebody crossing the finish line a little early because i believe nasa was hoping for about 2017 on everything and if somebody's early nasa said during the the pre-launch press conference they're fine with that too so yeah because they're not only worried about just getting to the space station and don't think this is you know going to be another year and a half or so until their next flight no this is the first of 47 scheduled flights between now and i believe 2014 or 2015 i'm not sure which they already have a couple of contracts signed with satellite providers international providers that they'll carry those up with their falcon 9 and their falcon 9 heavy which they should be testing I believe also later this year, and uh, <laughs> they basically have a very ambitious plan on top of their 12 scheduled test flights in the station. Just for a note, they're talking about next year in 2013 having six launches related to the uh, crew program for test test launches for crew just next year. So they've got an ambitious program, and there's a lot coming up. Yeah, indeed. Um, I hopefully they're hopefully they're up to it. Uh, but they, from what I saw uh, the past couple of days, I think they are. So uh, again, this is good news. It's good news for the ISS. I mean, anything that's going to go ahead and augment what we lost with shuttle, uh, now that Discovery is sitting in, over at uh, the Udvar-Hazy Center, and uh, Endeavor is on our way to the California Science Museum, and Atlantis is on our way down the down the street a little bit to uh, uh, the KSC Visitor Center. We, we've lost the ability to get not only crew but cargo up there and anything that's going to go ahead and get that ability back quicker and safely and more efficiently is, is number one in my book. The other thing, too, and I believe this also, Sawyer, check me if I'm wrong on this, this was also brought up during the, uh, the, pre-launch, the, the pre-launch press conference on Friday. Ms. Shotwell basically said that you could go ahead, that, they're trying to go ahead and keep the cost down, and as such, they can probably get a crew of seven to the International Space Station for $20 million a seat, as opposed to what we are paying Roscosmos right now, which is in the range of about 67 to $70 million a seat. So, again, we've got a, a, a pretty good cost savings in, waiting in the wings. Yeah, they've been surprisingly really cutting down on their costs. I mean, I believe up to this point, in terms of actual money that they spent as a company getting up to where they are now, I believe the number that they have spent so far is about $660 million on COTS. That's it. Which I know it still sounds like a lot, but just think that each space shuttle mission itself was about $300 million. And they've spent $660 million to date on the COTS program. 
I know, but you have to look at T. Sawyer. That the shuttle was a was a different beast. The shuttle was a far more sophisticated monster than than the dragon is, and thus it needed a lot more people to take care of it and coddle it and so on. Um, True, but they still have eighteen over eighteen hundred employees. <laughs> yeah, I know that, but you know, how many people does it take to to set up? You know, to set up a uh, a dragon launch as opposed to set up a shuttle launch. Very true. I was talking with one of the SpaceX uh, folks that was there at the pad, which is just what I was thinking about, actually, not particularly the flame trench, but um, what our impressions were of seeing the F-9 and Dragon on the pad for the first time. But I'll continue with the flame trench story first. And the the representative I was talking to uh, was not one of the folks that was there specifically for interviews and be recorded. So so we were just standing there chatting. And the the lady said, you know, there's things that we do differently from from other other companies. You know, we're we're doing things in a different manner. I said, well, well, what? Can you give me an example? I said, I don't really know. Technically, here at the pad, I don't really know that much of what I'm looking at. What am I looking at that's different? And she said, well, the flame trench, for instance. When we uh, made the arrangements to use this pad for, for our launches, we knew that we needed to make some changes to it. And we had a budget for it. And we needed to modify, in particular, the flame trench, which the purpose of that is to suppress sound and vibration as well as to to manage the uh, the blast of the engines while it's on the pad and during liftoff. And she said, we went to the Army Corps Engineers that does a lot of the construction work out here on the Cape, and they gave us a price. And it was half of the budget that we had for everything to do on the pad. And so we went to our engineers and asked them to come up with some ideas. And rather than have it be something of, what can you do to do this cheaper, we just asked them to figure out, find a way to do this, and they did. And so here you have this this concrete structure coming off the base of the pad. Uh, it looks like uh, a rectangle that's tapered inward and downward as it gets closer to the base of the pad and wider at the end we were looking into. And coming out from there was a, a framework of, of steel beams and, and, and a framework that went up and across. And she said, that looks like something that's not been finished. And I said, yeah. She said, well, actually, that's what our engineers came up with. And they came up with an answer to this problem for a fraction. And I mean a very small fraction. She wasn't sure of what the Army Corps of Engineers price was. But let's just say that their price was like 1% of what the original estimates were to modify the flame trench. But this network of girders and, and steel forms a water curtain when they deluge water through that apparatus. And the water curtain is what suppresses the sound, the vibration, and prevents uh, any bad things from happening to the rocket before it clears the, uh, clears the launch pad area. And so, and also just as a little trivia thing, there's a, a big oxygen, liquid oxygen storage tank nearby. And she said, we needed one of those. They're very expensive. We found one that was about to be cut up and sold for scrap. And we bought it, refurbished it such that we could use it, and there it is. We saved a, a lot of money on that. 
And so it's interesting to to talk to people with a, an organization that are not just looking to do things cheap, but just looking to what's the what's a good way of doing this. In a way, they've cut themselves off from some of the precedent of the prior efforts out there at Cape Kennedy and and elsewhere. And in other cases, they're actually doing things similarly, like the fact that they uh, put their rocket together horizontal. She said, if we've got somebody working on the F-9 and they drop a wrench, they're they're working at, at ground level or close to it. It falls on the floor. They pick it up. They don't have to worry about it falling and damaging the rocket as it goes 100-plus feet down to the ground. And uh, she said, we decided that what the Russians were doing made perfect sense, and so we modeled what we do after that. Now, Sawyer, what was your impressions seeing the F-9 and Dragon capsule for the first time? My first initial reaction when I got up to it was like, that thing is really small. I, I did not think it looked that big. It wasn't very, you know, it didn't have much width to it. And it was it didn't appear, I should say, that tall, at least compared to the lightning tower structures around it. And to my surprise, it was apparently taller than the shuttle at about 14 stories tall. But when you first go up and see it, the structures around it are quite impressive. But the rocket itself looks so tiny compared to everything else. Did you agree? I did. And the second thought that I had in looking at it is it's it's not gigantic, but, well, <laughs> if that's enough... To go to low Earth orbit, it must be pretty good. It must, you know, it, it must be the right size. It delivers yeah. a lot of thrust. Plus, it's got all those nine engines underneath it. But it's amazing that they managed to fit them all on. It's a matter of adjusting your perspective. We've gotten used to the the, the orbiter with the two SRBs and the external tank and the massive uh, pad, the launch tower, the rotating service structure, all of that. Uh, big stuff is what we've gotten used to. And here you are with a, a, a tall cylinder of a rocket with a capsule big enough when they certify it for crew to carry seven astronauts. Not too bad. True, but we, we passed by the, the Delta IV, uh, which was in its hangar, and that, in comparison, looked huge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Again, guys, too, you got to remember how big was the Atlas that took John Glenn into orbit? You know, yeah, not, you're right. Not, not all that big. Um, or ditto with Alan Shepard's 15 uh, minute pop gun flight. So, you know, in a sense, we're going back to the future, if you will, uh, where we're going back to those slender, you know, those, those slender vehicles, but, uh, you know, they, they get the job done. Yeah, it's not big, but again, as long as it gets off and gets off successfully. That's what matters. Now, before we go, one thing I might want to add here is that um, at the actual press site, there's supposed to be, you know, an ISS pass a couple of minutes before launch. Now, I completely lost track of time. We had no countdown clock on the causeway. So I didn't know what time it was. All of a sudden, I was talking with the person next to me, and I look over his shoulder, and all of a sudden, I see something moving. And I say to him, is that the ISS? And he goes, yes, it is. And so I called it out to all the press members, and we all looked up, and we all saw the space station a couple of minutes before the planned launch. But all of us totally forgot about the station, and sure enough, there it was as it flew by. And it makes sense that it would fly by a couple minutes before launch if they're in the same orbital plane and they need to meet up, right? Absolutely. And uh, just out of curiosity, 
talking about a 3.44 a.m. Eastern Time, Tuesday, May 22nd launch, I decided to pull up the projected ISS track that corresponds with that launch time. And at 3.35 a.m., the ISS will be crossing the western end of Cuba. A minute later, it'll be roughly over Miami, Florida. And, of course, the track is to the northeast, which takes it rapidly away and to the north. And uh, at launch time, I would say it's somewhere probably east of uh, the northern part of Canada. But there will be an ISS pass, and folks that want to wave are certainly invited to. Yep, so they should hopefully meet up. And just to give you an update, if it does launch as scheduled now on the 22nd, which again would be the Tuesday at 3.44 a.m., the following timeline would occur. So it would launch on the 22nd, which would then allow it, if it continues along, to orbit on the 23rd, and it would begin its complicated tests to come close to the station on May 24th. And if they look at the data for 24 hours and all is good, they will dock on the 25th of May, which would then lead to a hatch opening on the 26th. And deorbit is scheduled at this point and was scheduled even before this for May 31st. And that will land in the Pacific. So that's the upcoming schedule for SpaceX. So with that, that will bring this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Go SpaceX, go Dragon. It was a fun night. Sawyer, thanks for bringing back the Traveler's Tales. Appreciate it. Sure thing, and thank you for joining us tonight and for joining me at the Cape, Mark Ratterman. I'm going to take a peek outside at 3.44 in the morning, see if I can see it from 160, 170 miles out to the north. Uh, hopefully I will. Let you know. I have, I have a feeling you will, Mark. <laughs> That's going to be a darn good show. Skies look pretty good. Let's hope they hold. Indeed. Indeed, let's hope they hold. Weather currently is 80% go as of this recording, but everything looks good otherwise. So, thank you for joining us. Now, uh, Mark mentioned something about a little bit of curiosity about a topic, and we will not be back next week with a regular show. However, we will have a very special interview for you, and the comment that I just made should give you a hint as to what we may be talking about and maybe who we will be talking with. But we will be taking a break of regular shows next week to bring you that special interview. And we will be back in two weeks going back to our regular roundtable format. In the meantime, thank you for joining us here tonight. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. And go SpaceX. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. And launch of the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket as NASA turns to the private sector to resupply the International Space Station.